welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we are here today with Jordan Vanderberg, a PhD student in biology. Thank you for being here, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's jump right into it. So Jordan, I'm actually going to just start you off by introducing you as a new member of the GradCast. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be joining. Um, I'm hoping to help produce, so that's really exciting. Um, I really want to be involved. I've, I've listened to some of the episodes, and it seems really cool and a great way to get to know some of our, our graduate students around campus. Yeah, we're also getting you in here really, really early. We said as soon as you join and you say, yes, I'm in, you're on the cast. You're, in, you're interviewed on the cast. Jordan, so would you mind starting us off with talking a little bit about your research? Maybe your PhD research, if that's okay. Yep, so my PhD research is actually just a continuation of what I did in my master's because I stayed in the same lab. Um, so that's that worked out really nicely for me that way. So what I'm doing is that there's this pig disease called the porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, and it's caused by a virus. And it's one of the most uh, prominent viruses affecting the pork industry all across the world. So it's spread all across the world, causing lots of issues, both financial issues as well as loss of life and the health of the pigs themselves. So what I'm trying to do is produce a more effective and safer vaccine against this disease. And I'm also trying to do that in plants to try to also find a better way to administer the vaccine instead of trying to inject all of these pigs. We're hoping that we might be able to feed the pigs our plant tissue and that will vaccinate them. So the approach we're taking is a subunit vaccine. So there's a few different ways that you can do vaccines. So most of the vaccines for this disease are currently on the market. They are live attenuated, which means that it's just a modified version of the virus that is not supposed to cause illness. It's supposed to still replicate a little bit but not spread the way the actual virus would. But there's issues with that safety-wise because they can change back and become virulent, which means they can start in actual infecting and then spread, spreading the disease instead of providing the protection that the vaccines are supposed to do. There's also killed viral vaccines, which is also very common, and they're much safer because they're completely inactivated. The virus isn't alive. It doesn't replicate. It just has most of the parts still there so that the immune system can recognize that. And then for subsequent infections with the actual virus, hopefully there's protection. And then there's subunit vaccines, which is more in the realm of what I'm doing. So these are usually parts or proteins from a virus or a bacteria that we can use in order to show the immune system these parts so that when the actual virus or bacteria do the inf does the infecting, um, they have that immune response. So a subunit vaccine is, for example, a lot of the COVID vaccines. They produce the spike protein and that gets the body to recognize the spike protein if COVID infects you later. So in a similar way, I'm producing parts of proteins from the porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome virus in order to hopefully administer those to pigs so that their bodies can recognize those proteins, recognize the virus for subsequent infection later on. That's super cool, but I think we need to back up a little bit. And uh, just to like be sure that we have like we're all on the same page, like basically, basically a vaccine will work as like a picture that like 
a picture of the virus, right? So when the body sees that picture, it's prepared to find the virus later on and destroy it. So what a vaccine is doing is basically preparing your own body to be able to defend you in a later infection. So that's like very cool that you explained that there are three different types of vaccines that you can probably uh, produce. And uh, what you said is that you want to create just like a, a small portion of a virus. So let's say, for example, it will be like the head <laughs> or like the eyes. I don't know, something that is good enough for the body to recognize, to recognize the virus, but it's not the entire virus. So it won't cause further problems. Now, how can you make just this small part of a virus? Just for example, the head or the arms, how, how can you like take away all of the other parts or just uh, create a small portion of it? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the especially earlier ways to do this was trying to produce the whole protein on its own. And that works better for some proteins over others, but the proteins that I'm working with, which have been shown previously to be good candidates for vaccination, they're really difficult to produce on their own. So that is the trouble. How do we produce them? So instead of trying to produce these whole proteins on their own, we're taking just part of those, which we call the epitope. And this is the antigenic portion, the part that the immune system recognizes, and that because it can recognize that part, when the actual virus infects, it can target that part and stop the virus, or at least make it so that uh, the infection isn't as bad. So producing small parts of proteins, like you said, is also really difficult because they're really small proteins. The body and even the plant cells that I'm producing them in, they get rid of small proteins really quickly a lot of the time. So what we're doing is we have scaffold proteins, or what we're calling protein nanoparticles. So this is a single protein that we can express in the plant cells and a bunch of that same protein come together to make these larger three-dimensional protein nanoparticles. So sometimes they're circles, sometimes they're rod shape. So we can display the epitope, that virus part on the surface of these nanoparticles, on the surface of the sphere or on the surface of these nanorod structures. And that way the little virus part, the epitope, is being displayed to the immune system on the outside of these much more stable structures. Interesting. So I'm kind of curious how the, so the disease affects pigs and I, I know there's a lot that happens between the pig and the human, um, but does it affect humans at all or no? No, so this virus doesn't, which is probably a good thing seeing as how prevalent it is, but the major issues and one of the reasons we're studying it in my lab is because of the large financial burden on the swine industry. So um, a lot of times entire herds of pigs will have to be sort of scrapped, they'll have to be all gotten rid of because there's a large outbreak and that could cost the farmer themselves, that's their whole herd for the year possibly, right? That could be the majority of their income for the year. And especially because it's prevalent all over the world, um, it's very prevalent in China as well. And it's also prevalent in parts of Europe as well as North America. So um, that's why we're sort of targeting this. But luckily, this is not a virus that uh, affects pigs. There's a close relative of this virus that specifically affects horses. That's a little more studied than the one I'm looking at. And is this virus like mortal for pigs? Like once they get they're infected, do they die or do you, do they have any chance to recover as 
we humans did because there was a point where we were like we're going to be vaccinated but we're going to still get sick <laughs> so but we will survive it's there a point uh like that for pigs or how does it work uh with yeah virus yeah so i really like that question because it, it is really interesting and this virus i wouldn't say is too closely related to COVID, but there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences there. So one of the reasons this virus spreads so much is similar to COVID, once the pig gets infected, there's a period where it's it can spread the virus, but you can't really tell it's infected, which is one of the reasons it spreads so much. Like with COVID, you go see some friends before you have symptoms, and by the time you have symptoms and you know, you've been spreading it for the past three days. So it can spread really easily and really quickly in fields because of that. And um, it, it gets into the blood after about 10 days of infection. It usually infects in the pig's lungs. It gets into the blood, but then it sort of hides out in the lungs still. So the actual infection only lasts just a few weeks, but it can still be detected in the blood and still shed, which means still spread either through air droplets. Um, this is also sort of sexually transmitted and um, through feces as well, it can be spread or blood if the pigs bite each other, they like to bite each other's ears or tails. So it can still be spread for a long time and they can recover. Uh, one of the longest times I think that infection has still be, been detected is about 140 days after the initial infection, which unfortunately for pigs uh, is often the, the, about the length of time from when they're born to when they're slaughtered for food. So while eventually they could recover, in the actual swine industry, there's a very low chance of that actually happening. So it's considered a lifelong infection in that way. Interesting. So then aside from it, obviously it has a large economical impact, would it also have any sort of like agricultural or environmental impact either? So um, agriculturally, again, it, it can change. Some farmers might choose not to work with pigs if there's known um, if there's known spread in their area, or if they recently worked with pigs that didn't seem to work because they got infections. They had to either get rid of their herds or they had large losses. So it can change things like that. Entire areas might decide not to work with or grow pigs because of this, and then that could possibly lead to some shortages, especially in the area. Um, but environmentally, I wouldn't say there's too much of a change there. Um, but again, like less pigs, you might have less um, manure being made, less feces going out into the environment there. But I wouldn't say there's too much of a, an environmental issue with that. I'm curious, for how long has this virus been circulating on pigs? Uh, is it like a recent infection or it has been there for a while? Yeah, so it was originally identified in, I believe, the 80s or 90s. The, and um, it's it sort of spread really quickly since then. And interestingly, there's, there's two strains which are now classified as two separate species. There's a North American and a European strain. And they were originally identified separately in Europe and I believe North America at, um, at almost the same time before it was later realized that they were about the same virus, just identified in two places at the same time. So it hasn't been around for too, too long, but since it has, there's been a lot of research, um, a lot of research and funding funneled into studying this because of its uh, massive effects on both the swine industry and again, just the pigs themselves, their health and wellness. So is there a vaccine that you're trying to produce able to target uh, bo both strains or you're so, yeah. focusing on one? So I'm focusing more on the uh, North American strain. The European strain is mostly localized in Europe and causes mo more 
endemic issues, which means flare ups in small areas, and it's really prevalent in that area, but it's not widespread the way we more have pandemics. Whereas the North American strain is very prevalent in all of North America, and it's the most prevalent in China as well. So really larger areas are affected by the North American strain. So that's sort of what we've been focusing on. The lab I work in is also, um, it's joint with Western, but I technically work at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So it's definitely preferred that I'm working on what's hitting us here at home a bit more too. And I'm kind of curious. So I'm obviously you work within a lab, but what kind of brought you to doing this research? Like, I guess this is going back to why you joined your MA. Yeah, exactly. So um, I did my fourth, I did my undergrad at Western too. Um, Western and proud all the way. Um, so with my undergrad thesis, actually my fourth year of the genetics program, I worked with uh, Dr. Sangeeta Dobadal at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And that was very pure science, trying to figure out um, the subcellular localization of a protein. And then other members of the lab look at functions, they look at this whole pathway. So that really got me into the plant biology area and into the building I'm currently working in. And one of my good friends in fourth year, Nora, she actually worked in the lab I'm currently in with Dr. Reba Manassa in her fourth year. And we would always edit each other's uh, proposals, theses, all of that. And I'd always go, hey, everything you're doing is so interesting. Like, this sounds like it would be really great work. And she wanted to do other things a little more uh, computational. So I jumped right over asked Rima if I could uh, join the lab for a master's and I've been doing the the plant bio biology plant biotechnology stuff ever since here so yeah that's so cool and this is actually the part where I wanted to go <laughs> because uh while you were talking I was imagining pigs all the time and then out of the sudden you're talking about plants <laughs> not pigs anymore uh and it's confusing for me to imagine uh, the creation of a vaccine that uh, will affect pigs from a plant that are completely different organisms. They are not related at all. <laughs> uh, they, uh, the plants have, I don't know if they have an immune system, <laughs> but like the entire process, uh, it's very interesting to me because I, I've, I haven't heard about that. So could you explain how are you going to create a protein that will trigger uh, the immune system of pigs from plants? Yep, definitely. So um, when we're producing protein-based vaccines, which is what I'm doing, whereas again, just to bring it back to the COVID vaccine, it's always good to do that. That's RNA-based. So for the protein-based vaccines, they need to be produced in something. And that's often either bacteria, yeast, um, sometimes insect cells, mammalian cells, or more of an emerging field in the past 10 to 15 years is plants. So ideally, mammalian cells would be best to produce the proteins because if we can produce them in mammalian cells, like pig cells even, that would be very applicable to the pig's body. But it's much more expensive to work with these, and they're a lot more difficult to manipulate. They produce a lot less protein than some of the other platforms or, or species that we use to produce these. Bacteria are most commonly used to produce um, protein-based vaccines and things. Even the, the mRNA vaccines for COVID, they're produced in bacteria originally, and then lots of purification goes on. Um, but one of the issues with bacteria is that they're much more simple, and they can't apply some of the extra protein modifications that get added to proteins that the more complex organisms like plants and mammalian cells 
can produce. So the great thing about plants is they're really inexpensive to grow and care for because what I do is we just grow regular plants. They're Nicotiana benthamiana, which is a relative of tobacco. They're a lot smaller, native to Australia, and they're really easy. We have lots of tools to get them to change them, to get them to produce our proteins. So we produce normal or wild type plants, and then we inject or infiltrate in some way bacterial cultures into the plant leaves. The bacteria causes the plants to produce the protein that we're interested in. And then when we harvest the leaves, there's lots of that protein in there, our protein of interest, or in my case, my vaccine in the plant leaves. So currently I'm working to purify the proteins I've expressed in order to help characterize them, test them further. If we're doing animal trials, we wanna start off with pure protein, but eventually the hope is that we can just freeze dry the leaves themselves, grind that up into a fine powder and put that in the pig's food so that they can just eat what's effectively the plant leaves, some of the plant tissue, and that will vaccinate them that way. So we're just using plants as a platform to produce the proteins, and then we eventually get that into the pig. So for example, human vaccines, they're not really made in human cells, even though they end up in humans. So you're just tricking a plant <laughs> to work for you and produce something that they won't care at all. Absolutely. Yep, exactly. So... To go off of that, then I'm kind of curious what a day in the office or I guess the lab looks like for you, Jordan. Yep. So, so right now, as I said, I'm really working on purifying my proteins, which is a much more complicated and finicky process than I, I would like it to be. Uh, lots of factors go into there. So um, what I, I've been doing very recently is I go into the lab. I make my protein extraction buffer that has different components in it that just make sure none of the enzymes or chemicals in the plant when we do our extraction to take out all the proteins from the leaves, that nothing tries to break down our protein of interest in there. Mm. So I make the buffer, I extract the plant tissue, I use a mortar and pestle, you see me grinding away, um, and then I put the buffer in, get that going, so I extract the proteins, all of the proteins from the plant. And then I have to purify ideally just my protein from all of those plant proteins that I extracted. So that uses, um, I'm currently using affinity chromatography, which just means that there's these little beads that specifically bind my protein and hopefully everything else just kind of washes away so that I can afterwards get my proteins off of that bead and then it's just my proteins there and then I can work with those. So um, I'm currently trying to figure out if they're assembling into these larger structures that I mentioned, if those individual proteins are assembling, if, um, if the little epitope, that little virus part is actually being displayed on the surface. And for those two um, we use transmission electron microscopy. So we're really lucky at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada to have a transmission electron microscope that allows us to just visualize very, 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 very tiny things like proteins or small groupings of proteins. Whereas a regular light microscope, you might be able to see cells. We could see individual proteins in the cell. So that's really cool as well. So yeah, lots of protein purification, extraction, um, microscopy work yeah like to give an idea of how it will be like will you say like an alien it's looking at us 
with a telescope, with a telescope, so they can see tiny humans, but then they develop a more, uh, like a more powerful telescope, and now they can see through us, and they can see our organs. <laughs> so yeah. it's like that's like you have a very powerful thing that can look at very very tiny things. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I really like that analogy. I kind of have a double-ended question, and I and I don't know really how much how familiar familiar you are with either end of these things, but both the testing for vaccines, because obviously we, we keep talking about COVID because, you know, this pandemic is happening. And then on the other hand of things, the ethics of testing on animals versus humans. So I'm kind of wondering like both ends of that, where doing work with animals is different than doing work maybe with human, because I'm on the human end of things. If I'm doing work, I need an REB to work with humans. Uh, research ethics board approval. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious what that looks like in your end of things. Yep, definitely. So um, at least on the plant end, we can do a lot of things to plants, no ethics approval. So that's uh, very convenient for us in that way. Um, we eventually usually do mouse trials first because they're smaller, they're less expensive, and we hire someone to do that. So we get our proteins, we send them out, and then they do all the injections, they deal with the ethics there, but there's definitely a lot less ethics, the less complicated the organism is, especially um, with respect to its, its nervous system, its intelligence, that kind of thing. So a mouse, for example, you need a lot less ethics approval, still a bunch, but a lot less ethics approval than say for a primate or for a human. And especially the humans, you really need a lot of ethics approval as, as you just mentioned, especially if you're um, trying to inject them with things and test their blood and that kind of stuff, because the blood is where we get a lot of the antibodies from, which is the immune, part of the immune response that we're looking for the antibodies against our vaccine that will eventually be against the virus. So yes, there's there's definitely ethics involved with that. And then pigs would also be a little bit more than mice, but we like to start small, see what we can get there. Because as you said, there's less, less ethics involved. It's also less expensive. It tends to be less complicated. So we start small. If we see promising results, we move up towards pigs. And then for humans, um, there, there's just a lot more um, a lot more testing that has to be done, a lot more safety measures that have to be checked. So for example, with, um, with animals, with pigs, we don't have to necessarily have an exact, precise, specific dose of the vaccine. We want a certain dose to make sure it works. We want it to be less than a certain really high amount, but there's not a specific exact dose. Whereas for a human, you need this exact amount or you're doing something wrong. You're going against the ethics. It's not approved. It's not the approved use. So there's a lot, things are a lot more lenient when it comes to animals in that way. Hmm. So I, my curious is going in a different way because I'm wondering, you have like a very specific uh, epitope or like piece of protein that you are looking at. And I was wondering what happens if it doesn't work? Like what happens if you're not able to actually produce your epitope? Do you have a plan B? I don't want to go into a dark side, <laughs> but oh, yeah. I was wondering because many times these things, like you're even producing it in a plant. So like I can imagine a plant having a complete different system to produce stuff. I, I don't really know that much, but I was wondering, do you have a B plan or do you have like another uh, like, type of protein that you can possibly possibly produce to to create your vaccine 
Yeah, so a plan B is definitely one of the first things we considered, especially when I started my PhD. It was what direction are we planning to take and then what direction are we going to take if that uh, if that doesn't work out. So it luckily I'm hopefully near the mouse trial stage, hopefully by the end of the summer, if I can purify my proteins well, which is always an if. Um, but yeah, so we, we do have a plan B if if the immune response either isn't very strong or also something that we have to consider is there's different kinds of antibodies or there are different kinds of an immune response where even if we get antibodies produced, even if we get the immune response, it might not actually work or neutralize the virus. So that's bo both things that we have to test for there. So my backup plan is a different kind of um, a different kind of nanoparticle. So instead of having a protein scaffold um, made of those multiple protein subunits that display just my little epitope, just my virus part, we're looking at possibly using um, what's called virus-like particles. So it's effectively the virus, it's an enveloped virus-like particle. So it's, it's, it's essentially what the virus is made of just without any genetic material. So it still has full proteins on the surface. It's a little harder to produce. It's a little less stable. It's a little harder to purify, but it's a lot closer to the actual virus itself because it is those full proteins and those can interact with each other a bit more. Even um, I'm using two proteins to make my epitope, the parts of two of the little proteins, but there's a few more on the virus's outer surface that have also been found could be useful for this kind of thing. So I'll be looking into this other kind of vaccine, still making it in plants as a, as a plan B for that. He even has a backup plan. Um, I, because I don't come out of biology, have fewer biology questions and more just life questions. And so I, what I'd like to ask Jordan is what you would tell, I don't know, maybe an undergrad who is thinking about taking on a biology MA or a PhD, any, any sort of helpful advice you may give them? Because this is very complex stuff. I'm sure it's less complex maybe if you're in biology, but for me, it's complex. So oh, I, I kind of I'm kind of in biology and I'm really surprised because you're <laughs> like working with pigs and vaccines and bacteria and plants like every possible organism. So I do feel like it's a very complex uh, program. And that's a great question, I think. I'll start off with Laura's and then come back to Brittany's. Um, one of the reasons that I, I really like and stayed with the work I'm currently doing is because it, it interacts with and touches a lot of different areas. So it gives me a lot of jumping off points for, for afterwards, if that's, uh, I am interested in staying in academia. So it's nice that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of areas, I'm gaining skills in a lot of areas. And that's also, to go back to Brittany's question, um, something I would I would, I would tell an incoming student, such as a fourth year. Uh, one other thing that I'd, I'd really want to tell them is to, to really pay attention and look into the lab atmosphere. I know you're probably thinking when you ask that question uh, more on the biology or the lab work side, but, but the lab atmosphere, the lab experience, the lab group is really a major part of your grad school experience. If your supervisor either, um, an issue that often comes up, luckily not with me, but often comes up is that the, the learning or the teaching style of the professor or the supervisor might not quite match that 
of that graduate student. Maybe um, they're a little too or not enough hands-on and that might work for another student, but that might not be what's best for you. And the lab experience, the other members of your lab, um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, we're lucky to have lab technicians and I've been really lucky to have two amazing ones. So the whole experience of the lab who's in there, try to get a feel of that before you enter because that is a large part of your experience. Yes, it's about the lab work. It's about what you do in the lab, your experiments, um, the methods you end up learning, the hands-on skills, but it's two years around for, for a master's and theoretically about four for a PhD. So that, that's quite a lot of time. And who's in the lab, your, how you deal with the supervisor, that uh, supervisor-student relationship is, is major and a large part of how your, your lab work ends up, how your entire degree ends up with that. I think that was very well said um, because you covered kind of the multiple ends of things. Unfortunately, grad school is not simply lab work. I think that you can maybe make it, but a, a part of grad school is also, yeah, the people that you're surrounded by and also uh, that like the people that you meet along the way. So I think that's a very good word of, of advice that kind of goes across, like that transcends programs. See, seek out what's going on in the department before you decide to land there. Okay, well, Jordan, we've run out of time. <laughs> so you did an amazing job. Um, I wanna end off by asking if you've got any social media you'd like to share with us. Yeah, so as a member of GradCast, I'd like to direct you to the GradCast Podbean website, which might be mentioned again in just a moment. Um, there should be some information about me there, my socials, anything like that. Um, so yeah, definitely go check out the GradCast Podbean if you're looking for more information about me. That's perfect, because it will have a whole description of you and then any sort of blossoming social medias you may have will be mentioned there too. Exactly. Perfect, and a, and a visual as well. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Melton, and my co-host was Laura Munoz-Bayana. We've been with uh, Jordan Vanderberg. This episode was produced also by Laura Munoz-Bayana. Uh, if you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can find us on all of our and all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on other podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select episodes have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good night. Bye.